and I hope you have a copy of God's Word. I hope you have a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus 4 tonight. Uh, going to be a fun time in the Word. Um, Exodus 4 is one of those passages, one of those texts um, in the Bible that is bigger uh, than just time and place. Um, it's, it's more than just the history um, and the, the period piece that uh, we often uh, you know, know the Old Testament stories to be about. Um, all Scripture is truly timeless, uh, but some just stand out as more so than others and just state more clearly and speak more loudly than others. And Exodus 4 is one of those pieces. So just kind of heads up for where we're going. The first part of Exodus 4, we're going to kind of look um, kind in a, in a more uh, 30,000 feet view, uh, we're going to kind of look at it more broadly. The next part, next week, we'll look at it more specifically to, to the context uh, of, of the chapter. But um, uh, Exodus 4 deals with one of those age-old issues. Um, it, it deals with a conundrum that every generation has faced, um, and it deals with questions that every people group have often deflected with and often use um, in their rebellion against God, um, and not just against God, but also just in, in, in just kind of uh, fueling the unrest that we often have with one another. Um, and again, this, is, this isn't really a question that, that just pertains to theology, but uh, Exodus 4 deals with a question that I think we all um, have asked before and that we all have pondered before when we're thinking about something somebody's trying to trying to sell us on, whether you're trying to buy a car or whether you're trying to, to buy an insurance policy or whether you're thinking about buying into something that somebody is really selling you on or, or whether you're thinking about joining a church or, or more importantly, whether you're trying to consider whether you should follow Jesus. I think we've all asked this question pertaining to many different realms of life. We've all asked the question, can I believe you? That we've all looked at our husband, our wife, we've all looked at our kids, we've looked at our parents, we've looked at somebody that we don't know, someone that we do know, someone that we used to know, someone that has come back into our life. We've looked at a preacher, we've looked at a, a counselor or a teacher or a doctor. Maybe you've looked to heaven and you've asked this question, can I believe you? And even no matter how much they tell you or how much they try to convince you and try to sell you on something, you continue to ask that question, can I believe you. Now, and we won't go deep into what makes you or anybody trustworthy and what makes you or anybody, um, you, know, you know, trustworthy to the point that someone ought to believe whatever comes out of your mouth. But I think we've all faced this question before. We've all asked this question before. But as pertaining to God, this is a question that many have asked that many of you may have asked many times or maybe at least once before, but it's usually not posited toward God himself, um, but rather it's usually posited toward someone that is speaking for him. That usually when someone is trying to explain God to us, that we often ask them or think as they're talking, but can I really believe you? And maybe you've sat in church before, Maybe you've listened to somebody talk before and, and maybe you've thought to yourself, can I believe what you believe about God? It's clear that you believe that, Justin. It's clear that you believe that, Pastor. Or maybe this is your conversation with, uh, with someone that, that is farther down the road in their faith than you. Or maybe it's someone else that you've, you, you felt they've asked this before to you, right? You're talking to them about something or maybe they've talked to you about something and, and you just think, you know what? I get that you believe that and I, I can clearly see that you believe that about God. But I don't know if I can believe that about God. 
And if we've ever interacted with anybody who is doubting or questioning, we often respond back. And maybe you've responded to someone that says, you know what, I don't know if I can believe that. I know you believe it, but I don't know if I can believe it. Maybe you've said, I don't just believe it, honey. Right? Or I don't just believe it, brother. I know it. Right? That, you know, when they say, I don't know if I can believe that about God. I don't know if I can believe what you believe. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't just believe it. I know it. Maybe you've said that before. Maybe you've said it with a smile on your face and conviction in your heart. But they just don't get it. Haven't you ever said that to somebody that disagrees with you or dissents from where you believe or where you stand about God? And then they probably respond a little like this. How can I believe what you know about God? I mean, okay, I get it. You don't just believe it. You know it. And I can tell that you know it because you talk really loud when you say it, right? I can see the conviction and the zeal in your eyes. But how can I believe? How can I know what you know? And maybe you've been frustrated with somebody that you can't convince. Maybe you've tried to convince your son or your daughter or your grandkids. Maybe you've tried to convince your spouse. Maybe you've tried to, re- to convince that old friend and you just can't get through to them and they just look at you and say, I just don't know if I can believe what you believe. And I'm not here to explain to you how you can convince them or how you can change their minds, whoever they might be. I am here, however, to relate to you because you see, sometimes I have these conversations with God. Sometimes as a preacher... You may be surprised by this, or you may, this may confirm some of your suspicions about my inability to do this or my ineptitude. But sometimes I ask God, God, how can I convince them to believe what I believe about you? See, sometimes I am so entrenched in this, and I read the Bible, and I know the Bible, and I've studied it over and over again. I've read it in different languages, and I'm just so entrenched in what I believe and what I know, and it's not even an issue as to whether I believe it or not. And I don't say that to be arrogant. It's just that I read it, and I know it, and I try to. I don't always live it so well, but I, I believe it, and, and I can argue, and I can go, go to debate, you know, and go all the way as far as I have to, debating why I believe this is true and why you should believe it. But sometimes I'm on my face in front of God saying, God, how can I convince them to believe what I believe about you? And God tells me what he has told every preacher or every parent or every Christian who's tried to introduce him to somebody. And I'll share what an older preacher passed along to his protege years and years ago. But we're not going to stop here. But I want to just share with you what God always reminds me of. The Apostle Paul said to a young Timothy, As for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from your child, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we find the answer, right? That all Scripture is profitable to bring about what we are hoping for in other people. That the man of God will be complete, equipped for every good work. He goes on. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by His appearing in His kingdom... Preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. So, 
We kind of have the answer, so we should just say the end and go home. But it doesn't, it's, it's just, it's more to it than just simply opening the Bible and saying, well, this is what it says. You should believe because that clearly doesn't always convince you. Now, if the Word is truly God's revelation, if the Word is truly inspiration on a page, and God's breath to your lungs is simply a page away, and I believe that it is, and I hope you believe that, then it is enough to God and enough from God to get our attentions. And thankfully, I believe that it is, and, but not everybody does. Not everybody says amen to that. Not everybody sitting in church agrees to that. And maybe you push back once more. And maybe you or somebody else, and listen, if this is never an argument you've made, somebody has made this argument tonight, and you need to know how they argue against it. Maybe you've asked, or maybe they've asked before, how can I believe what the Word, and they wouldn't even capitalize the W there because they don't believe it's anything special, how can I believe what the Word says about God? And that's a very good question. It's a very good question. And while it may not be your question, it most definitely is somebody's question. And as a Christian, you must, must know how to answer it. Peter said, you owe it to Jesus to be prepared to answer that question. Listen to what Peter told us in 1 Peter. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. So here's what Peter's saying. Telling somebody, well, the Bible says it, you ought to believe it, might work in church, but that statement alone doesn't have leverage against unbelievers. Why would you expect it to, anyways? That statement alone isn't going to always work with your teenager or your grandchildren, with your coworkers, with someone who is not a believer or someone who is not an informed believer. And as we approach Easter, I think it is a good time to talk about this tonight. This won't be a full apologetic discourse giving you all that you need to know. There are smarter people out there than that than me that can do that. This will be kind of like a quick and stacked fast food experience version of those things. Um, but I hope this entices you to dig deeper and become more determined to study and know God's Word and also more dedicated in how to handle it correctly. Because, and not to get too heavy on a Wednesday night, but the fate of the next generation depends on how the church handles the Word. And you believe that. But I want to bring it, I want to present it in maybe a way that you haven't thought about it before. Because you believe that the fate of the next generation is dependent on how we handle the Word. But it's not just in how we uphold the truth. Not just in how we uphold the truth, but properly and effectively how we present it. Because if we don't present it effectively and properly, no matter how strongly we uphold it, it's not going to make a difference where it needs to make a difference. And we can't just be lazy and careless and say, well, you ought to. When we know good and well that's not how it works, and more importantly, that's not how God said it would work or intends it to work. I have a passion about this because I feel the decline in our, churches, in our church attendance and growth can be traced back in part to our sloppiness and inattentiveness to the details. 
And just quoting that text from Timothy isn't going to cut it when you're out in the world. And I don't fault any of you, but there. That, but I think there's this disc, our discourse has to change. Our understanding has to change if we're going to make an impact and see people saved and come to faith. We can't just say, well, we're right and they're wrong and they should be here and repent, but they're not. So God bless them and God help them, but I'm not going to feel bad when they go to hell. We can't have that attitude. So we're going to read this exchange between Moses and God. And you may think, well, where are we going with this, Justin? Just be patient. Moses presses God. Now, this is a big deal. Moses is going to press God and say, God, how am I going to be able to convince the Hebrews to believe in you? And listen, the Hebrews had a background with Yahweh, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew this God. So these people had a context for this God. This wasn't just a raw, lost group of people. These were God's people. And Moses is saying, okay, God, I don't know if you live down here like I live down here because, hey, I've been living in a little, I've been around a while. I don't know what you see from up there, but how am I going to convince these people to believe in a God they've, they've never heard about or never seen or never experienced? Moses is honest and he's concerned about the challenges that, trans, that, 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 that are going to you know, impact translating his faith to becoming their faith. And we're going to jump into this text and then we're going to jump out of it for the remainder of our time and talk big and broad about how this pertains to our mission to spread the gospel. So I think you'll enjoy that. How this connects to the New Testament, how this is a preview of the full revelation that we have as Christians... Because remember, Moses saw through a glass darkly, right? Moses only got to see the backside of God's glory, remember? So he's asking questions. He hadn't even seen the whole thing yet. So we got to remember that. So Exodus 4, we'll read the first nine verses as God kind of explains how this is going to work. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said, What is, it? What is that in your hand? And he said, a rod or a staff. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. (laughs) You believe that, right? So he runs from it. And the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. He reached out of his hand and called it. And it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. When he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put it in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom, which is just under his cloak. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. In verse 8, God makes it very clear. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even the two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So God makes it very clear to Moses how this is going to work. God says, Moses, he tells Moses that he would confirm his message with signs. Right? Three specific, very clear signs. The snake, the leprous hand, and the blood, uh, water into blood. Now, let me make a very important distinction here. Uh, that If we don't get this right, we'll go super way off track and we'll be very, it'll lead us in a very unhelpful direction. Moses is not a stand-in for me and you here. Therefore, the answer isn't, 
we need to start looking for God to do signs and wonders to convince people. So this is not saying, hey, if they don't believe the message, we should just start, you know, we should make, try to be magicians. That's not what the Word is telling us. If that were the case, then the, there would be, be just this through line throughout history of experiences and testimonies There would not be the written Word. So if this was all up to me and you just showing the world all, you know, make, put on a show, we wouldn't have the Bible in general. So that's not what he's saying here. Moses is not a stand-in for us. He is a stand-in. He is a picture of Jesus. And here's what is so important, and it's so revealing, and it's so powerful when you consider who Moses becomes to the Jewish people and what happens when Moses goes to Egypt, says, let my people go, and all that transpires does. The entire Old Testament, the lineage of faith for Judaism, unto this day rests on the shoulders of Moses' account. That every Jewish believer since the Passover, since the Exodus, every Jewish believer in the world today, their faith is rested on, it is anchored in the testimony of Moses. Isn't that big? That you read the Old Testament, you talk to Jews from the time of David to the time of now. Moses is their reference point. Moses is their foundation. His experience, his writings, his testimony, they don't see him as a picture of something more. They see him, him as the full and final revelation of God. And every Jewish believer since the day of Moses points to him as their authority. Yet, for you and me, something greater, someone greater than Moses has come. And he came to Israel, and even though the nation rejected him 2,000 years ago, even though they passed on him, he has still sent an invitation to Israel. He sends an invitation to them today, but he came for the whole world even Moses said, hey guys, I'm not the end-all be-all. I'm just, a gla- I'm just that glass half full. I'm just the glass that is darkly dimmed. I am just the beginning. Another prophet will come. And of course, Christianity teaches, we believe that Jesus was and is that other prophet. And not only was he the other prophet, <laughs> he was the God of Moses made flesh. He's not just the next Moses, right? Because he's the burning bush with skin on, right? He's the glory behind the rock with skin on. He's the I am that Moses just heard about and just got a glimpse of made flesh. That's why why this is bigger than just, okay, Jesus is just the next guy. No, he's the only one. Now, this is so wild, yet it's one of Jesus' closest followers, so we got to believe him. John, a disciple of Jesus, when he was an old, old man, wrote that he truly believed that the God of the Jews, the God he worshipped all of his life, he believed that the God behind Moses' testimony, the God of Moses had become flesh. Yahweh had put on skin, and John believed and said to us that his name was Jesus. This is what John wrote in John 1. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth, however, came through Jesus Christ. And I love this. This is so powerful. No one has ever seen God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought Moses saw God. John says, whoo he did not see 
what I saw. And I know we write about it and we sing about it and oh, he was in the glory cloud and oh, it was so emotional. Moses didn't see nothing compared to what I've seen with my own two eyes. Nobody has ever seen God, but the Father has made Himself known through Jesus Christ. And people say, John, you're just a fisherman. What are you talking about? John, you're not making any sense. And John's like, listen, I'm, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. I don't, you don't have to believe me. All I'm telling you, I can't explain it. I have stood face to face with who I am pretty sure is the God of the universe made flesh. Come on, John. That's a pretty big statement if that is true. John says, I believe. He was convinced that the word given to Moses was made flesh in the person of Jesus. I mean, what? It's so it's a big deal if that's actually true. Many would ask John, John, how can you say that? How do you believe that? And in his quest to convince the world to believe what he believed, what he saw with his own eyes, John would write what he would, what we call the book of John, the gospel of John, and he would write all about the fullness of God he experienced from Jesus. And John anchors his book around these signs that are convincing were convincing to him at least, that Jesus was, in fact, God made flesh. And here's how John closed his book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John would reiterate this in a companion letter that we call First John. Over and over again, he would say, we were eyewitnesses, and I'm just writing this down so that you can believe what we have seen, because what we have seen was a, was a once-in-this-universe genera- revelation from God. And John will say, I'm not a theologian, I'm just a follower. And what I saw made it clear to me that Jesus was God in a body. Jesus is God made flesh. John built his entire case around these signs of Jesus. Much like the signs that propped up Moses, these signs were testimonies of Jesus' true nature and identity. And here's what is so important, because many modern Christians miss this. The supernatural acts of Jesus were not random power plays. They were signed with a purpose that identified Him as Messiah. His first sign, turning water into wine, is a beautiful picture of taking old and making it new, of taking something old and replacing it with something new and something better. Taking Moses and giving us something better, something greater. Taking grungy water used to wash people's feet and making it the fruit of the vine that tasted better than anything anybody would ever drink. His first sign made it clear something greater had indeed come. We aren't to become enamored by the signs, but rather we are to become enamored with who they point to. Jesus. And this is so important. We don't chase after and we, we don't believe that salvation and evangelism... 
is, 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 are, we, salvation and evangelism isn't dependent on replicating any signs, just like there isn't any need to replicate a Savior, because the same Savior, Jesus, is enough. And those signs that He performed point to Him and identify Him as the Savior. And I'm not saying that God can't, can't perform miracles, but we need to realize what these accounts offer us, a platform to preach Jesus from. Now, I want to close around one of the signs, particularly, and, and you can turn there with me as we wind down. John 4, the end of John 4, actually verse 46. I want to look at that text for just a few minutes. Because this sign, the second of his signs in John, is so powerful. And I think it speaks to where we are tonight and where we live as believers. So John 4 Jumping in, this is right after Jesus and the encounter with the woman at the well. The text tells us, So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was about an eight-hour walk away from Cana, or about a three-hour chariot ride. This guy is a royal official, so he's probably a Sadducee, Sadducees did not believe that prayer mattered. Sadducees believed in fate. They believed that things would not and could not change. That you live for the pleasure of God and you died the way He wanted you to. So here's this Sadducee that hears about Jesus. Verse 47, He heard that Jesus had come out to Judea unto Galilee. He went to Him and implored Him to come down and heal His son, for He was at the point of death. So the Sadducee, who had been trained to not believe in the power of prayer, not believe that God had any interest or care at all, he heard of Jesus. And these signs, the first one in and of itself, was already doing its job, drawing people to Jesus. And of course, this man wanted to see if Jesus could do the same for him. And this was just the beginning of the revelation from God. Verse 48, then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Now, he's not saying that as a knock or a negative. He's just confirming that what he is doing is confirming his identity, how they would prop up him as they did Moses, but in a greater way for many to, many to believe forever and ever and ever going forward. Verse 49, the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So unless you come with me, my son is going to die. He's desperate. You're the only hope we have. And I don't even know if you actually can heal my son. I just have heard some rumors. And perhaps if you come with me, my son might live. But if you don't come, and if you can't heal him, he's going to die. So why not take a chance? Of course, Jesus chooses the third option. Jesus asked the official to trust him based solely on the testimony of others, based on the stories being told about him. And he says in verse 50, go your way. Your son lives. He says, okay, well, I know you want me to come and you say if I don't come, he's going to die, but I'm going to give you a third option. You should leave. I'm staying here. But I promise you, your son is going to be just fine. I'm not coming with you, but I'm asking you to trust me anyway. And I know I'm just a carpenter. 
and you've heard a rumor about turning water to wine, but come on, what's that? I know you've heard rumors about me, but you don't know me, and I don't even know you. But you came eight hours to find me, and hey, that's pretty impressive, but I'm sorry, buddy, I can't come. I'm too busy. But, if my word matters to you at all, your son's going to be okay. Go on. Don't hurry, don't worry. He'll be fine. (laughs) Isn't this where we all live as Christians? Isn't this where everybody lives? Jesus paints a picture that many have walked for the last 2,000 years. Jesus asks us to trust everything to Him based on the Word about Him. He doesn't even try to confirm it. He just says, hey, you've heard it about me. Well, that's nice. I'm glad you are interested in me. And I hope you continue to be interested in me because that's pretty cool. But hey, hey, I can't come with you. And I can't promise you it's going to get better tomorrow. And I can't promise you that prayer is going to get answered as as the way you want it to. And I can't promise you the burden is going to go away. But there's still joy and peace and confidence available for you. You just got to believe you just got to trust in me and the words you've heard about me. I promise you, things will be okay. And even though you may continue to pray those same prayers, and even though things may not immediately get better, or ever get better, the choice is up to you to remain faithful because you've heard that Jesus will remain faithful. This conversation might be your whole life condensed to one verse. And verse 50 tells us that the believer, the the official, believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. He didn't know if things were going to get better or not. And this is so powerful. He walked away from his only hope because he decided that faith was better than hope. He could stand there and beg for Jesus to do something to give him proof. He could stand there and beg for Jesus to get in his chariot. He could try to pay him off. He could try to just convince Jesus, you got to come with me. My wife begged me to come to you and I've come to you and i got to take you back. But he decided that faith was better than hope. And this is so powerful. He walks home by faith, not by sight. In verse 51, And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. He inquired to them that the hour when he got better, and they said, Yesterday... At the seventh hour, about one o'clock, the fever left him. Of course, the official at that point would have remembered that was the exact same time that Jesus said to him, go your way, your son is going to be just fine. And with tears in his eyes and with the overwhelming spirit upon him, he looked at the servants and he said, let's go home. I need to embrace my wife and my son. The father knew it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. And this indeed was, was the second sign that Jesus did when he came out of Judea unto Galilee. And that is the message that we have been given tonight by Jesus.
we have been called to walk by faith. As if Jesus is your Savior. You've been called every single day to walk by faith as if. That means you have to, you walk, even though you can't always see it or feel it or tell it, you walk as if Jesus is. I mean, come on, because if He is your Savior, if He's a Savior, that's a big deal that you know His name. But if He's not just a Savior, He's your Savior. Walking by faith as if He is your Savior is a pretty powerful way to live. Living as if God is indeed your Heavenly Father. As if your sin has been forgiven. As if you are loved by God. As if you do matter. As if your life does have a purpose. As if you are important to this world. As if your obedience to God will make a difference. As if reflecting Jesus can change somebody's life. As if I don't have any idea what hangs in the balance of me walking by faith. As if Jesus is my Savior and your Savior. When we live as if, many will know who we're with. Many will know that we truly believe in Jesus, the Jesus we claim to be our Savior. Many will see that our cornerstone isn't just words on a page. It's a person. It's God in a body. It's Jesus, God made flesh. Jesus Christ, who did more than just heal a little boy. He died on a cross Citing us as the reason. And again, this is just somebody's words. This is just the report that somebody shares with us. But if it's true, if it's true that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that if we believe, we won't perish. That we'll have life in Him. I mean, if it's true that Jesus really said, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. If it's true that he called us his friends, that he would lay down his life for us. I mean, if it's really true that when he was on trial before Pilate, he said to Pilate, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to what is absolutely true. I mean, if all that is true and we believe absolutely based on the testimony of eyewitnesses that it is indeed true that He did so love the world, that He did lay His life down for His friends, that He did cite you and me as the reason He was born, the purpose that drove Him to the cross... And if we walk by faith, we will begin to see and know this at heart. Church, Jesus is not the sail in your boat that you hope the wind blows and takes you a little farther. He's the anchor. Right? He isn't the rod or the reel that you cast into the water hoping to catch something with. He's the rock that you can rest on. Before you say, well, I've never experienced something like this man did with his son. Are you ignoring, are you forgetting the account you have of the truth? I mean, this is an incentive to obtain power, but an invitation to believe a promise. These supernatural signs point to the sovereign and the supreme Savior. It's about a mighty God, the Master who came to save us all. And John says, you know when I decided that I had to write this all down? 
You know when I decided that all that stuff that came before meant something more than just a miracle? When the other disciple reached the tomb first, also went in, he saw and believed. John John said, when I saw his final act, when I saw that he had indeed risen from the grave, I was convinced, and I am so convinced I've written all this stuff down so that you, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life, not just life in this world, but life in His name. So it all comes down to our response to a question that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Moses met I am on the mountain. But you meet him every time you read the word. That's where we start when we share the gospel. People can argue against a book, but they can't argue against a risen Savior that many eyewitnesses and many believers continue to encounter to this day. So who do you say that I am is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And if you know who He is, what's stopping you from telling the whole world? What's stopping you from living as if, as if He really is the Savior, your Savior, the resurrected Savior. Moses' signs have been forgotten, but Jesus' signs will never be forgotten. And you, a saved sinner, are just another page in his amazing story. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I'm so thankful for this testimony of Jesus Christ. God, I'm thankful that we can believe these eyewitness accounts. These signs and these wonders, they point us to who you really are. But God, many of us, we're like that nobleman, we're like that official, and he's met with the decision, do I just stand and hope? Or do I walk by faith? Do I live as if Jesus is my Savior? Or do I stand still and wait until I have proof? Father, you're waiting for some of us to take that next step, to take that first step, to trust in your word, to trust the eyewitness accounts, to trust the Spirit of God's breath on a page to us. And that's where you come and move and breathe into our lives and you make a difference that we can't see when we stand still. God, somebody needs to take that step tonight. They need to trust in these accounts, to trust in your word, to trust that Jesus is their Savior and live as if He is their Savior. And then they will see and know and have life in Him. So Father, may you ask us that question every day. Who do you say that I am is? And if you have a little bit of 
an idea that he's Jesus Christ, the Savior. What are you waiting on? God, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you for Jesus.